Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Harry Stee, Harry Dick John, Harry three, one, two, three, Neds, Richard two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? I'll tell you who. It's Edward the fourth. Although it's all quite complicated with these current episodes because Edward the fourth and Henry the sixth essentially shared a throne, taking it in turns to rule. Robert Lacey, in his Great Tales from English History, describes this era as a humiliating royal timeshare which is pretty accurate. Now, in the last episode, we left Edward on the throne for the first time, having deposed the feeble-minded Henry, who is still hanging around. We haven't killed him off yet, but we will manage that in this episode. For now, I'm going to shift the focus off Henry and on to Edward. So, Edward was the son of Richard, Duke of York. This is the Yorkist branch of the family who were in competition with Henry's Lancastrian branch. And Richard very much was the man who would be king. He really wanted to rule the country. But he had the problem in that we already had a king in the form of King Henry VI. And Edward IV was one of Richard's sons. He was born in 1442 and he died in 1483 when he was only 42 years old. So his reign, like so many of these kings, was cut short. Uh, he was born in Rouen in France, and he came to the throne for the first time, aged only 18. We're so used to seeing picture book illustrations of monarchs or old paintings from the era in which the monarchs all tend to look the same. They look like middle-aged men with beards. And what we forget is that a huge amount happened to them when they were young and many of them came to the throne when they were young and as i say edward himself 
was only 18 when he came to the throne for the first time. So he was tall and handsome. He was six foot two. He was very much the image of a young, strapping monarch. But he, he did do a bit of a Henry VIII and became fat and out of shape as he got older. And if he'd lived as long as Henry VIII, maybe he'd have become the same size because he enjoyed feasting and the good things in life. In the contemporary portrait of him, which is easy to find, you can see that he's already well on his way to becoming that sort of late period Henry VIII, that familiar figure with heaviness around the face and a sort of puffiness around the eyes and a certain weariness in his expression. And, you know, historians at the time noted that even at 33, he was running to fat and looked a lot less handsome than he had done five years previously. As I say, he enjoyed the finer things of life. He was a great uh, womanizer and, you know, was indeed this kind of sexy, handsome guy when he was young and used to getting his way. But as he grew older, and certainly after Henry VI was, was fully deposed and removed from the story, and Edward was more secure on the throne, that's when he sort of let things slip. But some people have sort of characterised him as a sort of businessman type, an oligarch. He was very interested in making money and keeping hold of it. He was involved in several enterprises on that front. He, he was interested in in how the world works. He wasn't one of those kings who wanted to just sit on his throne and say, I am king, nothing else matters. Um, I am going to make some rules and pass some laws. No, he, he, he got stuck in. He made sure he knew people's names. You know, he was something of a backslapper and a handshaker, telling dirty jokes to amuse the other men that he hung out with. Uh, as I say, he got into business, he was into import and export in a big way, sending things like wool and tin abroad and importing wine, paper, sugar, oranges, the sort of things you couldn't get in England. This was why, after he'd taken the throne from Henry, he was able to eventually hold on to it, because the merchants and the businessmen of London were very much on his side, and he made sure that he was on very good terms with them. You know, everybody involved in the system, he learned their names and there was a certain amount of micromanagement in his own setup. And he was always fascinated and involved in what all the royal courts were doing up and down the country. He was a worldly man. He wasn't one of these sort of pious, distant monarchs. And Robert Lacey, again, he called him a master of corporate hospitality. Uh, he was fond of laying on hunting and feasting for those noblemen and merchants he wanted to impress and get on his side. I mentioned in the previous episode how, during Edward's reign, William Caxton set up the first printing press in England, right next to the Palace of Westminster, in one of the outbuildings of Westminster Abbey. And books were a real prestige luxury item. They were rare and they were costly. And to own a library, in fact, even to own a shelf of books, was considered to be the height of sophistication and conspicuous wealth. And this is another occasion where we see London as very much the centre of England. If you want to get anything done, you go to London. 
So this was the obvious place for Caxton to build his business. And Caxton himself was a southerner. He very much spoke the Queen's English, or in this case, the King's English. So that became the norm in printed books. So we can see that this is kind of the first instance where in the media, a southern accent and southern culture becomes dominant. And Edward is part of all this, a big man in the city, a wheeler dealer. Once the wars came to an end, England could prosper. And Edward was the first king for over 150 years who didn't die in debt. He didn't leave that much money behind, but there was at least some money in the treasury. But he was a usurper. He didn't have a huge claim to the throne, but with force of will and with making the right deals and um, working with the right powerful people, he was able to hold on to his throne. Now, it's a recurring problem in this series, the fact that everybody seems to have the same name, and we're stuck with that again here. We've got two Edwards, two important Edwards, and I'm going to talk about Edward's early life a bit, and I can't, at that stage, call him King Edward, or even Prince Edward, because he is not an heir to the throne. He was the Earl of March. So before he becomes king, I'll call him Edward the Earl of March, because the other Edward is the actual heir to the throne. It's the Prince of Wales, the son of Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou. So I'll call him Edward Prince of Wales to differentiate the two. So Edward, Prince of Wales, was the legitimate heir to the throne. Uh, but only one of these two Edwards is going to sit on the throne and wear the crown. So just to backtrack a bit and go over some of the ground from the previous two episodes, just in case you're only listening to this one episode and want to know everything there is to know about Edward. Um, his father, Richard, Duke of York, from this rival branch of the family, was very much keen to take the throne. I've been referring to him as the, the man who would be king. And he eventually goes to war against King Henry and Henry's wife, Margaret. It all kicked off at the First Battle of St Albans, where Richard of York and his right-hand man, Warwick the Kingmaker, launched a surprise attack on King Henry with the intention of killing as many of his faithful noblemen as they could. But once they'd won, they still swore loyalty to Henry and for the time being, he carried on ruling. And we've seen how Henry lost his marbles and spent the rest of his life and his reign kind of trying to find them. Well, actually, he didn't. His wife, Margaret, took over and tried to hold things together while Henry was away with the fairies. So there's a series of battles, conflicts, disputes coming and going, different people taking power. And then there is a battle at Ludford Bridge in 1459, where the forces of Queen Margaret defeat Richard of York's army, and Richard and his family have to flee. At this point, Edward is only 17 years old. His father and his younger brother Edmund go to Ireland, where Richard has something of a stronghold, having been Lord of Ireland for a while. And young Edward, the Earl of March, goes to Calais with the two powerful members of the Neville family. There's the Earl of Salisbury and his son, Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick, Warwick the Kingmaker. 
who has been instrumental in helping Robert and has been trying to put him on the throne because he sees that Henry is weak and that he sees that Henry is surrounded by rival families to the Nevilles. So Warwick has a stronghold in Calais. He has been Lord of Calais on and off over the years. This is the last remaining English territory in France and he has a lot of loyal men there. So Edward goes with Warwick to Calais. And once they've kind of recovered and built up their forces, they return to England. They land in Kent and march towards London, not quite sure what the welcome is going to be, but the Londoners open the gates and let them in because both Richard and Warwick, the kingmaker, were already on very good terms with the business community there. And all the business community wanted, they didn't care who was on the throne, they wanted stability. Well, they did care who was on the throne. They wanted someone strong on the throne who could hold things together so they could carry on doing business, particularly uh, trading with the continent. So Warwick and young Edward, the Earl of March, are welcomed to London. Soon after this, at the Battle of Northampton, they take possession of Henry VI again. He goes along to these battles and he kind of hangs out in a tent or sits under a tree or something. And he, he seems to have been quite easily captured each time. So he's back under the control of young Edward, the Earl of March, and Warwick, the Kingmaker. And they take him to London and Edward and Warwick rule in Henry's name. And not long after this, Edward's father, Richard of York, comes back from Ireland with Edmund, comes to London, expecting to be proclaimed as king, but the lords block it. They don't want him as king. This is a big blow to Richard because all he's wanted is to take the throne, but he has to go along with it. He manages to persuade them to agree that he will become heir to Henry so that when Henry dies, he will take the throne, which means that Henry's son, Edward, Prince of Wales, Edward of Lancaster, is disinherited. So it's a quite a mixed up thing of like who's actually in charge, who's ruling, and there's still a lot of unrest out there. Margaret is still on the rampage and she can draw a lot of support from the north and also from Wales. So young Edward, Edward of York, the Earl of March, is sent west to try and prevent a second army from leaving Wales coming into England and joining up with Margaret's army. Uh, and this is an army led by the Earl of Pembroke. And Edward successfully, and remember this guy's only 17 years old at the time, he successfully keeps this army in Wales. Meanwhile, his father, Richard of York, and his brother, Edmund, go north to take on Margaret's army before the Earl of Pembroke's army is able to join them. But disaster! They're both killed at the Battle of Wakefield. And this is obviously a massive blow to the Yorkist faction. But luckily, young Edward, the Earl of March, wasn't caught up in this because, as I say, he was taking on Pembroke down in Wales. And neither was Warwick the Kingmaker caught up in the disaster. His father was killed, but he was still at large. Margaret of Anjou wanted to press her advantage and marched on towards London because if you can hold London, you hold the country. Warwick the Kingmaker hastily put together an army to try and stop her, but at the Second Battle of St Albans, she outflanked him and pressed on to London, but not before recapturing her husband, the feeble Henry VI. 
But the gates of London are barred to them. The Londoners want nothing to do with them. There is this barbaric northern army, hardly speaking the same English as them. They don't want this chaos and disruption. They fear these northerners. So she's turned away. And she goes back north to the safety of her strongholds there. Meanwhile, in Wales, young Edward, the Earl of March, has defeated Pembroke's forces at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross, and he is able to join up with Richard Neville, Warwick the Kingmaker, and they go to London and they take over. So even though they don't have Henry or his legitimate heir, Edward, they do have London. And because of how the Londoners dealt with Margaret, they feel confident enough to set up shop and say, we are in charge now. And the reason Warwick is called Kingmaker is this is the first instance where he puts a king on the throne. Edward, Earl of March, becomes Edward IV, which is where we left him in the previous episode. But he comes to the throne promising peace and unity, an end to all this unrest. He said, look, we're going to draw a line under this. Henry was useless. He'd lost his mind. Margaret is disruptive. The Northerners are in danger of causing chaos in this country. Let's settle everything down. And Londoners agree, and financed by the wealthy city of London, Edward and Warwick put together a fresh army, and they successfully defeat the Lancastrian army at the, well, it's an apocalyptic battle, but at least it is ultimately decisive. It's the Battle of Towton. The two armies fought for 10 hours in a snowstorm. It has the dubious fame of being the bloodiest battle fought on British soil. It is said the rivers ran red for days. And it largely came down to one fact, that the wind was behind Edward and Warwick's army, the Yorkist army, and it was blowing snow into the faces of the Lancastrian archers, whose arrows fell short, while the Yorkist arrows were given this extra energy by the wind. So that was a decisive factor, but also, I guess, the leadership of Edward and Warwick. But the Lancastrians were smashed to pieces. However, Henry and Edward, Prince of Wales, were not captured. They remained at large. So Edward is unique in being the only king to take the throne while the legitimate king and his son were still alive. But as we've seen, Edward was a wheeler dealer. He was a realist and he seemed to be willing to forgive the Lancastrians and try to get them on side. As I say, slapping backs, shaking hands, telling jokes. He was a very blokey sort, a sort of Nigel Farage, if you like, with pint in hand, a man of the people. Come on, let's all get together and sort this nonsense out. And so things held in London, whilst the legitimate king, Henry VI, is on the run, skulking around Scotland and the north, uh, staying with whoever is willing to, to look after him and his retinue at the time. And the merchants and the lords, and let's face it, the ordinary people want this disruptive war to be over. And eventually, Henry is betrayed by one of his own in the north. He's captured and handed over to Edward, who parades him through London and locks him up in the tower. 
Now, there's no point in executing him at this point because his heir, Edward, Prince of Wales, is still at large with Margaret. So if you kill Henry, who you have got prisoner, then you make Edward the legitimate heir to the throne and you don't have him. He is still free. He can still get support. He can still put together his own army with Margaret. So Edward rules while Henry festers in the tower. So at this point, there is still an ongoing power struggle in France between the French king and the Dukes of Burgundy. And Edward is expected to take sides. And in doing so, this would also give Edward some importance in Europe again. Uh, would make him a bigger, more illustrious king. Because as long as England is this sort of parochial place with just dealing with their own problems and not engaging outside of its borders, England is sort of enfeebled and weakened. And it's useless as long as it is isolated from the rest of Europe. So Edward needs to engage with what's going on in France. He leans towards Burgundy while Warwick favours the French king. So here are the first signs of disagreement between these two men. Now remember, Warwick feels and is pretty much acknowledged as the man who put Edward on the throne. So he's very powerful. You don't want to upset him. The first thing that happens is that Edward's youngest sister, Margaret, marries Duke Charles of Burgundy. So that creates a forge between Edward and the Burgundians and will keep them happy. But Warwick, meanwhile, is trying to arrange a proper political marriage for Edward, ideally with someone who's part of the French royal family. And he settles on King Louis's sister-in-law, Bona. That's B-O-N-A. Uh, Bonar, perhaps. Oh, let's call her Bonar. We don't want any sniggering in the back rows. Um, she is the daughter of Louis, the Duke of Savoy, which is this territory between France and Italy. And this is all arranged, so this is going to be a really useful marriage for Edward and for the English king and for the English people. We will have this proper connection to the king of France. And Warwick is quite full of himself, but then Edward drops a bombshell and announces that he's already married. Without telling anybody, he's married this commoner, Elizabeth Woodville. And everyone is flabbergasted. She's not royal. She has no title. Her father was a servant to the Duke of Bedford, who was um, Henry V's brother. He married the Duke of Bedford's widow, Jaquetta de Luxembourg, when the Duke died, which allowed him to be ennobled. And he was given the title of Earl Rivers because of his wife's standing. But in himself and in his own right, he was nothing. He was a fairly ordinary knight. So Edward had married beneath himself and the chance of a political diplomatic wedding has been thrown away and Warwick has been made to look like a fool for saying, oh yes, Edward must marry this high-powered Frenchwoman. And so Warwick and Edward are, you know, at each other's throats at this point. And nobody could understand why Edward had done this. And they cooked up the story that Elizabeth's mother, Jaquetta, was a witch and had used black magic. She was put on trial, but uh, was acquitted because they were just trying to sort of find some way of not putting the blame on Edward as the king. I mean, there were lots of reasons given for it, but it seems that Edward was simply in love with Elizabeth or at least was sexually infatuated with her. But for whatever reason, he married her, this commoner, in secret and kept it secret until he could keep it secret 
no longer. And, you know, there are a few sort of romantic stories written around the characters of Elizabeth and Edward at this period. But there are slightly more sordid stories circulating, many that he was just sexually infatuated with her and that she'd only agreed to sleep with him if they were married. And he thought perhaps he could just keep it secret and work out a way of dealing with it later. I mean, there was also stories that he'd held a knife to her throat to try to persuade her to go to bed with him. So as I said, he was a real man's man. So whatever the case, Elizabeth had to be formally accepted as queen and she was escorted into Reading Cathedral for her crowning ceremony by Edward's younger brother, George, the Duke of Clarence, and by Warwick, the kingmaker, who had to look like he was uh, on side at this point. And Edward now sets about doing what is always unpopular with a king, installing favourites. His wife, Elizabeth Woodville, has a large family of unmarried brothers and sisters. And Edward sets about giving them important positions, giving them land, marrying the sisters off to important people, and really setting the Woodvilles up as this power family around him, which does not go down well at all because they are not a properly posh, noble family and they are upsetting the old order and they are taking money and land from these old English families. And this leads to an even deeper rift between Edward and Warwick. Warwick, who has so carefully managed everything up to now, finds young King Edward is no longer towing the line. There's a lot going on here, but remember Edward is still only in his early 20s and he's dealing with Warwick, this older, more powerful man. And Warwick wants to try and maintain his position and his power and uh, one of the ways, obviously, of doing this is, is through marriage. Um, but first of all, Edward further alienates him by removing Warwick's brother George from his post as Chancellor. So Warwick tries to get his sister married to Edward's brother, Duke of Clarence, who is also called George. There are so many Georges in here. But the story of Warwick and the story of Edward, there are so many parallels between the two of them. They'd both lost a father and a brother in the war. They both do this business of going over to France and coming back with an army. They've both got a brother called George. But essentially things fall apart and Warwick ends up leading a rebellion against Edward and defeats his army at the Battle of Edgecote. And isolated from his army, Edward is captured by one of the Neville family, which is Warwick's family. At which point Warwick and George, the Duke of Clarence, Edward's younger brother, try to rule in his name. So Warwick is thinking... I'm dropping Edward, I'm siding with George now, and perhaps I'll make him king, and he's pretty useless, so I'll essentially be running the country. But this doesn't go down well. This setup is not approved of, and various local lords use the chaos and disruption as an excuse to settle local grievances, and there's a feeling that things might slip back into full-scale war again. And so in order to keep the peace, Edward is freed and returns to London. At first, he does nothing to punish Clarence and Warwick. But there are more unsuccessful uprisings. Clarence and Warwick are implicated, and in the end, they escape to France, where, amazingly, Warwick the Kingmaker starts negotiations with his age-old hated enemy, Margaret of Anjou, who is also hiding out there. And they make a pact 
to restore Henry VI to the throne with French aid. So Warwick, he says to her, look, I didn't have a problem with Henry. I just thought he was badly advised and things weren't right. And now Edward's behaving even worse. So we'd be better off putting Henry back on the throne in brackets and I'll be powerful again. But Edward sends secret messages to his brother Clarence saying, are you sure about this? If you put Henry back on the throne, you will no longer be heir to the throne. As my younger brother, at the moment, you are heir. You support Henry, you'll be nothing. So Clarence is wavering. But with French support and with Margaret's support, Warwick does what so many have done before. He lands in Kent with an army, which is rapidly bolstered when he is joined by many nobles discontented with the Yorkist regime. And it's enough of a threat to cause Edward to flee to Flanders with his little brother Richard, the Duke of Gloucester. There's a story that Edward left in such a hurry that he didn't have any money with him to pay the captain of the ship to take him to Holland, and he had to give him his expensive fur-lined cloak to cover the cost. But anyway, Warwick is now back in charge. He frees poor old King Henry from the Tower of London and puts him back on the throne. So, yeah, I mean, he really does fancy himself as the kingmaker now, the most powerful man in the land. So Warwick the Kingmaker is in London with Henry. Edward is on the loose in Europe and he makes a pact with Burgundy. Henry VI is not at all popular back in England. He's more feeble-minded than ever. He's a puppet king with Warwick in charge. But with Burgundian support, Edward now does a Warwick and lands an army in England. At which point his younger brother, Clarence, switches sides, deserts Warwick and joins up with Edward, and Edward defeats Warwick at the Battle of Barnet in very heavy fog. And in the confusion, Warwick the Kingmaker is slaughtered. That's the end of him. He is out of our story. Edward and the Yorkists are back in power. The Lancastrians are fatally weakened. Margaret, with her son, Edward, Prince of Wales, their army meets King Edward's army at Tewkesbury. Another of those famous battles of the Wars of the Roses. And Margaret's army is defeated and her son, Prince Edward, is among those killed. So now there's no reason to keep Henry VI alive. And on the night that Edward IV victoriously marches back into London, Henry is murdered in the Tower. Probably organised by Edward's younger brother, Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, who we briefly saw before. Richard who goes on to be King Richard III. The Yorkists claim that Henry died of pure displeasure and melancholy. Nobody believed this for one moment. It is what is known as a Boris, a barefaced lie. Essentially, the Lancastrians have no figurehead left. There's no king and no royal heir, so there's nothing left for them to fight for. Warwick, the kingmaker, is dead. His influence is over. So Edward can set about building bridges, making friends, settling everyone down, and he was pretty good at it. And I guess I sort of covered that in the opening section of this episode, how Edward was a very able politician, and he sat pretty comfortably on the throne for the next 12 years. And he got the Lancastrians back on side, the only real descent coming from the bastard branch of the family, the Beaufort branch who had married into the Tudor family. But we'll save them for a later episode when the Tudors come back more prominently into the story. 
There is still the problem of the north-south divide, of trying to unite these two very different parts of the country. And Edward sets his younger brother, Richard of Gloucester, up as Lord of the North. The idea was to kind of unite the country, but it does sort of, in some ways, reinforce this with Richard being powerful in the north and Edward powerful in the south. But Edward didn't seem too worried. He had control. He made sure he knew everybody and what they were doing. He knew how to build loyalty and he knew how to build a robust support structure. He was quite hard on his younger brother, George, the Duke of Clarence, who in all fairness had rebelled and led an army against him. And so Clarence was eventually accused of plotting against Edward. He was locked up in the tower where he was executed. Edward joked that he was drowned in a barrel of Malmsey wine. Um, this seems to be just an allusion to the fact that Clarence was rather fond of the booze. He was a bit hopeless, a drinker. He kept switching sides and Edward had enough and wrote him out of the story. So everything was looking rosy for Edward and for England. It looked like the wars were over. Things could get back to normal. Business could run as normal. Edward and Elizabeth had ten children, including their eldest daughter, Elizabeth, who comes back into our story later on. And the two oldest surviving boys, Edward, the heir to the throne, and his little brother, Prince Richard. But as King Edward reached his 40s, he began to suffer from various illnesses. And in April 1483, his body gave up and he died. Nobody can say for certain what killed him. It was possibly pneumonia, perhaps a heart attack or apoplexy, which is basically a stroke. Winston Churchill, in his History of the English-Speaking Peoples, said that he basically died of overindulgence, of giving in to the pleasures of the flesh, which is kind of the view of historians who want to impose a moral judgment on Edward. There was always this idea that the way that a monarch died was emblematic of who they were. It was a sort of uh, God decided the fitting way for them to go. But before Edward went, he decreed that his younger brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, should be protector of the realm until little Prince Edward was old enough to properly take charge. And we'll see in the next episode how this did not go well. Now, Edward is not one of our better known kings. One historian dismissed him as a bloodthirsty non-entity. He was seen at the time as being overly self-indulgent. And as I say, that his fatal illness was a punishment for being ruled by his senses. Too much eating, too much drinking, too much womanising. Much as he loved Elizabeth, he had many mistresses. There were three key ones who were described by later historians as the merriest, the wiliest and the holiest in the realm. He was a very successful warrior early on in his teenage years. He was good at seizing the initiative, both um, in politics and on the battlefield, uh, where he would try to gain the upper hand quickly and move quickly, taking his enemies by surprise. Um, he was very good-natured. People did seem to like him, but he wasn't gullible like some of the other good-natured kings. And he was a builder. He did leave behind some legacy on that front. Um, he made St George's Chapel in Windsor, the uh, fabulous chapel that it was, until it burnt down in Elizabeth's Annus Horribilis. He also left behind a legacy in Greenwich and Elton Palace. 
There's a great hall in Elton Palace, which is very similar to the old hall at Westminster. And Elton Palace is a fascinating place to visit, not just to see the medieval hall, but later on in the 30s, the rest of the house there was turned into this fabulous art deco 30s kind of modernist masterpiece. It's got some beautiful rooms there and modern technology. There's this sort of mad Heath Robinson-esque vacuum system in the basement, which is connected to sockets in every room. So you would take your vacuum cleaner from room to room, plug it into one of these sockets, and everything would be sucked down into the cellar. As I say, if you're at all interested in history and architecture, give Elton Palace a visit and plug yourself in to the past, to Edward IV. And as I say, our next episode will be all about Edward V, who, although he was officially the next monarch, has gone down in history as one of the two princes in the tower with his little brother, Richard. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And my proper historian today who's going to help me make sense of all this, uh, I'm very pleased to have back the wonderful James Hawes, author of, amongst uh, many other things, The Shortest History of England, which I said before and I'll say it again. If you do want a proper good overview of English history with uh, some strong and interesting arguments put forward in it, then go to this book written by a proper historian, not by a Johnny-come-lately history buff like myself. James, welcome back. Oh, you lovely to be back again. You can say all that as often as you like as well. <laughs> And yes, I'm sorry to plunge you into the middle of the Wars of the Roses. I had so many historians say, and, and, and this isn't because I've gone down a list and eventually come to you, but so many historians say, oh, please, I don't want to do the Wars of the Roses, please. It's just too too, it's too much. It's well, too that's it. It's all about seeing the, seeing the trees for the wood or the other way around. Yes. Well, that's what's so great about your shortest history of England is, you know, it, it's an overview of the whole thing and it doesn't get at all bogged down in the sort of minutiae. And, and for me, you know, trying to plot a path through this series, that, that, that's quite inspirational for me. But you've got the advantage of being able to do maps and diagrams, which you can't do no, in a, a podcast. Big no, that's <laughs> you, you do a video, do a Lego, a Lego shortest history where you actually see things moving around. <laughs> I think there's a, a really important prequel to the Wars of the Roses. And, and I think that's why Shakespeare starts off with this, really. You know, the death of Richard II, then Henry Bolingbroke, and Henry IV Part One, which is all centred around a really important event in English history, which seems to be bizarrely forgotten. 
And that is this thing. See, it's 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 the core of one of our most famous historical plays, Henry the Fourth, Part One. It's the tripartite indenture, which is this document signed between the Mortimers of the South of England, yes. who regard themselves as Richard's Richard II's rightful heirs, the Percys of the North, who for centuries have been you know all but kings in the North of England, have palatinate powers up there, and Owen Glyndwr. Of Wales, and this isn't just something which was Shakespeare invented or a or a kind of half remembered dramatic device. This was an official Latin document, countersigned by the King of France as well as these people, mm. which proposed that they were going to split England forever into two different realms, so that Owen Glyndwr would get a vastly increased Wales, which would have included all of Herefordshire, Shropshire, and Cheshire on our maps, because Cheshire was still regarded as kind of semi-Welsh then. And now the Perses would get or the North, and the Mortimers would get the South, and the Latin document said, to each man and his successors. So it wasn't supposed to be just a kind of you know, arrangement to force something on the king. It was actually going to be a division of England for the duration, along basically along the line of the Trent. That's why in Shakespeare and Henry IV has Percy say, you know, he's saying he's, he objects to the line of the Trent and says, you know, see where this river comes me cranking in and robs me from the best of all my land, a huge half moon, a monstrous girdle up, I'll have this river down. He's talking to the Trent here. I remember that. I played Hospital once. <laughs> I was going to say, that's very good recall. <laughs> and so the Trent is this sort of, it's a geographical divide between the north and south of England. And has it always been a, a sort of strong political divide there as well? It's always been there. So in, in the 14th century, for example, the, the Oxford and Cambridge and the um, the kings of arms, the guys who are in charge of the heraldic devices of England, both divide uh, England up into north and south. So Cambridge and Oxford have Borales and Oriales, they call their students. Oh. They call them nations, actually. So they have their own totally separate administration within Oxford and Cambridge because they're so different. And really what's happened, I think, in English history is that this, which goes right back to the Venerable Bede, and the Venerable Bede talks... I think nine times in his history, this is 731 AD, about the North-South divide. Since the conquest, England has been this really strange country, which has had a tiny elite of French speakers, almost certainly less than 5% of the entire population, who run everything. Hmm. With the abdication of Richard II, well, and then the killing of him, and Bolingbroke's taking of the throne, that kind of cultural unity of the French-speaking elite starts to break down. Henry IV, Bolingbroke, is the first king of England since Harold to take the throne with a speech in English. Yeah. And what's happening is that kind of unified French-speaking, very small elite, all related to each other, all, at the end of the day, feeling more in common with each other than with their Saxon peasants, that's breaking down and we're going back to a kind of much older English default of people acting like regional Anglo-Saxon magnates. And I think it's no coincidence that the whole chivalric code breaks down there in the 15th century. So by the end of the Wars of the Roses, which we're talking about today, dukes, princes are just being executed right, left and centre after losing a battle in a way which would have completely shocked, say, the 12th or 13th century. They would have thought that, no, you can't do that. They're members of the chivalric elite. But all that's breaking down. So the Perses and the Mortimers, who are the signatories, of this tripart indenture in 1405, they become major players on opposite sides in the Wars of the Roses. And it starts to take on this kind of primeval English sense of regional warlords who are not out to just jockey for position, but they want to you know, stamp on, kill, wipe out 
the opposition. So where did the Nevilles fit in in this tripartite agreement? Because, I mean, were they not a fairly powerful family then in the West? The Nevilles were curious a lot because they actually, which is probably why they get called the kingmakers in the end, because they kind of straddle the two. The Nevilles' core lands are in the Midlands, mm. but they have they have unusually also enough power in the north to really piss off the Percys. And it's actually that which kickstarts the whole thing, really. Before the first battle of St. Albans, which is taken as the actual start of the Wars of the Roses, it starts off in the year or two previous as a kind of running battle between the Nevilles and the Percys mm. in the north. And that's what the king is summoning people down to try and sort out. And then it kicks off majorly at the first battle of St. Albans, which is a very almost unique battle in British history because it consists almost entirely of top nobles and their direct retinues. There are no foot soldiers present, really. Mm. So they've all gathered here to have this kind of standoff and hopefully a conference. It goes badly on. They end up killing each other in the streets of St. Albans. And that starts this series of vendettas, and, you know, where the Duke of Northumberland has been killed. And... Uh, so obviously his sons are going to hate whoever kills him forever, and and that's the the Percys. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And so I mean, so how much of the aristocracy was dismantled during these these wars? I mean, so many of them seem to have been killed and executed. Did they have enough children to keep filling the they, gaps? They didn't. That's the extraordinary thing, and that's the background to when we get onto the Tudors. That's the background to this whole Tudor reorganisation of England. Is that by the time Henry the Seventh comes to the throne? and finishes the War of the Roses, ends it. Mm. There are only 39 peers left in England. The rest have all been killed and died out from lack of sons, or their sons were killed with them as well. <laughs> you know. Basically, it, it's a kind of mad suicide war of the mm. English aristocracy, one against the other, carried out with this utterly new pitilessness. So there's no, there's no, no prisoners taken, literally, by the end of it. And, and so I mean, did that lead to new openings, new beginnings, new families being able to come forward? Very much so, because one of the unique things about the English War of the Roses is that it took place entirely in the field. There are basically no big sieges. Now, that's very unusual for European warfare at this period, which tends to consist almost entirely of sieges. In fact, we remember the battles that almost everything that went on was a siege. And the reason for that is very interesting is that all through the Hundred Years' War, the English aristocracy had been fighting in France. So for a hundred years... There's been no war in England itself. So the fortified towns and the castles of England are all 100 years out of date. And the English aristocracy who know their warfare from France, they realize very well that their own defenses are just last century's iteration. They're not going to stand up to modern warfare, which by now includes primitive cannons. Mm. So they don't even try to hide behind walled towns and, and their own castles. They decide to settle everything out in the field because by now, sieges usually only go one way. There's very little disruption to ordinary trading burger life. The middle classes keep on trading, keep on doing their order stuff, while the aristocrats are killing each other in the field next door. So yes, it opens up. There's sudden there's a space at the top of the tree for wealthy merchants who speak English to take over from this old French-speaking uh, aristocratic class. So it's the rise of the bourgeoisie and the end of chivalry. And that's what Shakespeare shows in Henry the Fourth, Part One. You know, hot spur. He just wants these old chivalric things and, and it's all mocked. It's pointless. Mm. It's an old code so that the, the, the merchants of Bristol or Norwich or London can quietly make money and be prepared to kind of take over. And is that one of the reasons why Richard Neville, Warwick the Kingmaker, as it were, is able to get so powerful is because he gets the merchants on his side. He, he helps that's trade. One, that's one of it, absolutely. He seems, to, he seems to have understood better than anyone else that you've got to get 
those people on your side as well. It's not all about chivalry. And of course, in his case, it also means entirely changing sides whenever you fancy mm. it. That <laughs> one offends you. And then there's the big moment where London closes its gates to Margaret of Anjou. And it's sort of like, we don't want these northerners in our city. We just want to get on with making money. It's a really important moment in English history because this is, in a sense, the first time that something you know, which defines us to a large extent till this day happens, which is London starts to act almost as a separate city-state. Mm. It's not just a passive place that anyone can conquer, anyone can march in. So, as you say, yes, the Queen wins this totally crushing victory in the Second Battle of St. Albans. London, theoretically, should just accept her and her son as the new ruler, but it doesn't. Because by now, what's happened is that this apparently really confusing system of vendettas and people against each other has actually, it's actually clarified itself into a north-south conflict. As you say, and the, and the Londoners say, we close our gates against the northern men. They just do not trust these northerners not to pillage the place. And so so London, for the first time, acts as this kind of city-state in its own right, and the north-south divide becomes really explicit as a dividing line in the Wars of the Roses, because it's all confusing because we could Lancastrians and Yorkists, who are both, of course, in the north. But <laughs> it's accurate about the Lancastrians, because their power base genuinely was this huge duchy of Lancaster in the north, but really the Yorkist power base was the, the marches of Wales and the south of England. So that they're actually the Yorkists are actually the southerners. And by now it's become really clear this. Yes, yeah, so, so it's interesting that the the king, his faction as it were, the Lancastrians, very much have their power base in the north rather than in the south and in London. Where, whereas, you know, what's happened in England historically since then is that is the North is very seen as the kind of labour stronghold, the kind of working class, and the South is the sort of Ponzi Southerners who you would think would be the sort of natural fit for the for the monarchy. Yes, you will. I think that this is this is the whole thing that really the decision has not yet been made at this period. It's just a question of two rival blocks of the country, who's gonna actually win and take London. But unfortunately for the Northerners, the Londoners decide that they've got more culturally in common with the Southerners now. So this is where it really, really starts to solidify. And it follows up then, when the Queen retreats, the Southerners regroup the Yorkists and follow her up to Towton, where there's this extraordinary battle, which you know, it's the most bloody battle ever fought in England. Mm. Out of a population of around two and a half million, we think, at this time, there are 20,000 men killed. That's the same as on the first day of the Battle of the Song. Hmm. In one afternoon, all at close quarters. You know, there's no there's no machine guns or German. It's English against the English. No mercy given on either side. And about one percent of the entire population is hacked to death in one afternoon. Oh, it's true. extraordinary level of violence. Because by now, and 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 their contemporary witnesses all say this. By now, they basically conceive to each other as as two separate nations, as aliens. They drank different beer. They, they <laughs> eat different bread. They barely understood one another. You know, the, the, the Southerners won the day. And accounts suggest that when the Northerners finally broke, which is when the casualties really mount mm. up in any primitive battle, the Southerners actually couldn't understand what they were saying when they begged to surrender. So they just kill them anyway. <laughs> That's a good excuse. And extraordinary, the most extraordinary thing about the battle is that the, the records of the time say at one point the dead were piled so high that they agreed a truce so that both sides could clear away their own dead and then get back to hacking each other to pieces. It's just the most extraordinary, extraordinary thing. It goes, it goes shows that the whole, the whole chivalric code 
had collapsed by then. It wasn't just ordinary people. But then, you know, if, if you were a duke, you were just killed afterwards if you mm. lost. But I mean, so the, I mean, there had been this idea in some of the earlier battles that Warwick had said, "Don't attack the common men. I just want to go after the the lords." But that seems to have all completely fallen apart by the time of Towton. Yes, I think because by then the war's gone on so long, much longer than anyone could have foreseen when the first Battle of St. Albans kicked things off, mm. that as almost the second generation of, of warriors are fighting, they've got to draw more deeply on their resources. And so that means each regional magnate, say the Persians, are drawing really deeply on what men they can haul in from their own from their own heartland, likewise the Yorkists from, say, around Shropshire and Herefordshire. And so that it takes on, it begins to take on this character of a regional war between massed armies of ordinary people. So that by, by, by the time of Towson, you have about 50,000 people on each side, whereas the first battle of St. Albans was probably two or 300. So when the war started, it was just, I mean, you do what your Lord tells you. You've got no choice. But you're saying that by this time in the war, the two sides really do seem to become deadly enemies. And I guess you see this so often in civil wars like in, in Northern Ireland or the, or the Balkans, even to a certain extent what's going on between Ukraine and Russia, although that's not really a civil war. But there's this process whereby small things build up and suddenly these people who were your neighbours are now your enemies and they deserve to be killed. I think probably yes. I think so. To say the, the, English, the English, both the magnates and their men start to act more like the Anglo-Saxons would have done really. They say they, 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 we're us, meaning from our region. Mm. They're them. They say they 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 talk different, they eat and drink different stuff, and they're coming to our place. Let's kill a lot of them. They had to take <laughs> on that really kind of earthy quality of a national war. Really, mm. yeah, I think what the fascinating thing is, you look on maps. It helps, which is why I use maps a lot. Obviously, is that there are essentially three power blocks going on yeah. in England in this age. There's the Northern English. The Southern English, and really importantly, the Welsh. We tend to underestimate the Welsh because we English have a horrible tendency to kind of rather despise Wales as a place, I think. Um, <laughs> it was really, really important in the power balance of England, not just in this tripartite adventure with Owen Glyndwr, but it becomes throughout the next couple of centuries, Wales is always a really important part of it. So you have who is who's going to be able to bring two of those power blocks together? They'll probably be the ones who win. That's why the Lancastrians ultimately win because, of course, Henry Tudor the last hope of the Lancastrians, is Welsh. So when he arrives back from France in 1485, he deliberately lands in Wales, where he's able to get his kind of tribal connections going. So by the time of Bosworth, he's bringing together, he's bringing Wales into right. the equation, but he actually bizarrely managed to bring the South as well. So it's actually then it turns into the, the, the Welsh and the South against the North of Boswell, because the constellation of these three kind of power units has changed, and that's what makes Henry win. And of course, there's actually another battle two years after Bosworth, nearly as big. The name of which I forget off the top of my head, but it's a, a, right on the Trent where an, an Irish army comes across and an army of Irishmen and Northerners, uh, Stoke Field. Right. And Henry then has to defeat the Northerners and the Irish uh, by using the Welsh and the Southern English. So it's, it becomes a fascinating kind of national battle of almost the nations. And I think if you, it, it sometimes gets far clearer to me if you think of our, our, our island history as a kind of our face off between. Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Northern England, and Southern England. It actually becomes a lot clearer often, <laughs> even our modern politics. You know, mm. because functionally speaking, very often, usually, the Labour Party is, to all intents and purposes, the Northern English Party, allied with the Welsh and Scots. 
until the Scots went separate in 2015. So I think our, our long history in, in, in Britannia is really illuminated as soon as we start thinking of the Northern English and the Southern English as very often, to all intents and purposes, separate parts of this power. Next, this can change in all sorts of directions. So the Welsh were pretty crucial to the outcome of the Wars of the Roses, and it was important to get this third power block on side. And because the Yorkists ran the Welsh marches, because you hate your neighbour, the Welsh broke for the Lancastrians. So it's another example of how you know, this interplay of nation mm. happens the whole time. It's too much to keep up with. It is. It, it's, it, <laughs> everyone loves the War of the Roses because it's got this, it, it, these crazy colourful characters and hideous happenings. <laughs> but actually, you can, I, I think you can make sense of it if, if you start seeing it as this total rejig mm. of, of politics in, in England and Wales, at least, and not Scotland to this stage. But Edward IV, I mean, at least as long as he lived, I mean, he did seem to hold things together. Is he perhaps more important and more interesting than historians have judged him? Yes. I mean, there's a strong body of thought these days that he, not Henry VII, was actually the first Renaissance king, that he, he actually started to bring in Renaissance art and Renaissance learning to England. He seems to have been a very charismatic man, enormously large, I mean, tall. I think he was a six foot four or something, a huge man for the day, with vast appetites. <laughs> or women in food, which eventually may have undone him, you know. There is this sense, it, well, it should really have been finished after 40 yeah. years. That's, that's clear really after that. And if he hadn't just suddenly died young, then we would have had no princes in the tower, no, no prince in the Richard tower, III, no. and all those marvellous plays. And is it fair to say that Edward was our first businessman king? Yeah, well, that's, that's the argument of those scholars who say he's, he's the first kind of Renaissance ruler because the re- was bringing in Machiavelli's ideas from, from Italy. Um, the idea was the the ruler would run the kingdom for everyone's benefit with the help of skilled men, not with a bunch of warlike aristocrats. He would use educated, skilled men who would, of course, come from the church to have a kind of rational, a, you know, hard but fair, you know, it's that kind of rule. <laughs> he'd, be, he'd, be, he'd be ruthless like Machiavelli, but he'd also be, be more, much more efficient by using people, wow, like accountants, because these had just invented accounting. So there'd be a new way of running a society with the king being served by educated list of administrators mm. and who would, of course, be non-aristocrats because aristocrats were too good for that kind of thing. They didn't want to be bothered with admin. They just thought <laughs> you go hawking and hunting. So it was in his interest to get, obviously, get this merchant class on side as the rulers of Italy were at this stage to increase his wealth, his power in this kind of new way of running a kingdom. And like a couple of kings before, he seems to have been instrumental in, in bankrupting an Italian bank. Oh, yes, of course, yes. The, the Medicis, I think. Yes, I don't know much of that, but yes, he certainly, he, he knew exactly what was going on in Italy. People weren't unaware. We think we think of ourselves being networked in other things. They, they were perfectly well networked and they knew what was going on. And after the end of the Hundred Years' War, you know, England sort of pretty much sort of turned away from France. And then obviously for the next 30 years, they're involved in this homegrown war. So, I mean, did, did England start to sort of cut itself off from Europe at this point? And how did the French and the Italians and the Holy Roman Germans look at us at this time? We had a big drop in stature, really, because England had been present as a player in Europe mm. for centuries. You know, there's King John at the Battle of Bouvines in 2014, you've got the whole Hundred Years' War. And suddenly, when we're finally kicked out in 1453, which gives Henry VI a mental breakdown, apparently. I've lost France. No, we <laughs> be like King George III in, 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 the, in the famous film. You know, It's not that we retreated. You know, we, we kicked out. Uh, suddenly, in the chancellors of Europe, as people say, we're a far less account. 
because we haven't got boots on the ground anymore. So that the Habsburgs and the Bourbons and so forth, they start forging their own countries into bigger and more powerful units. But So the Holy Roman Empire, run by the Habsburgs, and France under the Bourbons, both of these are three or four times as big as England in terms of population and tax take, um, which becomes a, a huge problem when Henry VII, sorry, Henry VIII, Henry VII keeps it all quiet. He just needs balance. He knows that after this hecatomb of the Wars of the Roses, he just needs to keep things on an even keel, so he just keeps out of all this trouble. But when Henry VIII decides he wants to be a player in Europe again, his problem is he's playing with the boys who are much bigger than him yeah. in terms of monetary resources, which he basically is, is what leads to the Reformation. He bankrupts himself and needs money from somewhere, and where are you going to get it? The church. So when, so when did we start to be taken seriously again in Europe, or, or are we still waiting? <laughs> it's actually probably not until Cromwell. There's so, a, the, so Elizabeth and the and the Spanish was was not seen well, as the, the the Dutch took her seriously. The, the the Dutch actually offered Elizabeth the throne of Holland twice, oh, right. but she turned it down. And she didn't. <laughs> she, they wanted her to protect them against against the Spanish. So yes, it's true. I was being polemic. They, yes, we were held after the defeat of the Armada. That certainly impressed Protestant Europe. Mm. As a, as a, but we again we didn't have any real boots on the ground there until Cromwell used the new model army to fight on the side of other Catholics against other Catholics for money, essentially. Uh, and they were very, very efficient. But we we retreated very much into our archipelagic shell, because what really British politics is about, from Henry VII on to Bell Cromwell and the Civil War, is about who's going to run the archipelago, mm. England, you know, Britain, and Ireland. Is it going to be a set of separate crowns, somehow united? Is it all going to be run by the Parliament in Westminster? That's the thing that's going on. That's the big rejig. So we become obsessed with, that, with the creation of ourselves on these islands, and we don't really have any time to be putting putting boots on the ground in Europe again until the 18th century, really, mm. with Marlborough. So Richard of York was kind of in charge of Ireland for a while, wasn't he? And that gave him something of a power base. I mean, I, I'm sort of intrigued because I don't really know... I should know more about Irish history, but what, what what actually was going on there? You had these English lords theoretically in charge, but I mean, what was the English grip on Ireland at that very, time? Very, very tenuous. At this stage, basically, the, the writ of England or of the governor in Dublin runs hardly outside Greater Dublin. Right. The towns of Galway and Wexford and so forth, yes. But that's it, basically. The Irish have almost reconquered the whole of Ireland at this stage. And everyone's speaking Gaelic again, especially the aristocracy. And because they've intermarried. Now, the guys in Dublin and Galway are all pleading with the Crown for more resources to fight off the Irish. Mm. So, sorry, when you say aristocracy there, is this the sort of remnants of Anglo-Norman aristocracy? Absolutely. They've gone native. They've become, in the famous phrase, more Irish than the Irish. People like the Fitzgeralds, (laughs) who are virtually viceroys of Ireland by now. Mm. Um, They are by now speaking Gaelic and French. And English and Latin. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. They're an elite culture, which has nothing to do really with the ordinary English merchant cultures they have dubbed in and Galway. And they feel this. So they keep on appealing to the crown against what was their own elite a few hundred years ago. It's a fascinating tale there. But Richard comes in, and all these guys, the Fitzgeralds and the O'Neills of people, have a huge respect for a warlord. Right. That's what they are. And Richard was a, he was a, guy who was always prepared to go down route one of physical violence, <laughs> his own nephews if need be. You know, this is impressive stuff if you're a Gaelic warlord as well. So the Yorkists had great prestige in Ireland. Oh, history. I know. There's, there's so much of it. It's bigger every day. 
Well, thank you once again, James, for helping me keep up with it all. And can I remind you all listening that James Hoare's Shortest History of England is a brilliant look at the story of England and how we ended up where we are today. But now, before I sign off, I have a bonus treat for you. We had Helen Castor on as a guest in the last episode, and she was talking about Margaret of Anjou. But because I didn't actually get to the end of Henry VI's life, some of what she talked about didn't really fit in that episode. So I'd just like to share it with you now as it nicely rounds off the life of Margaret of Anjou, who was a fascinating character. Now, we'd been talking about the animosity between Warwick the Kingmaker and Margaret, the two worst enemies in England, and how, after Warwick had fallen out with Edward IV, he fled to Paris and tried to make an alliance with Margaret. This is the most extraordinary moment of a series of extraordinary wars. It's almost incredible. Warwick had been the power behind what became the Yorkist throne. He had masterminded, or he liked to say that he'd masterminded, the Yorkist strategy. And that, of course, was one of the reasons he'd fallen out with Edward, because Edward didn't take too kindly to having someone standing right behind him going, it was all my idea. The problem that got them to that extraordinary meeting in in Paris was Warwick's problem. His position as the power behind the throne had stopped working because Edward was a young man, an incredibly able man, a man who was king and wanted to be king, wanted to make his own decisions. This didn't go down so well with Warwick. So Warwick tries to take back control. Uh, I mean, first of all, he tries taking Edward prisoner to see if he can force him to do what he wants. But you can't capture your own king and have everything work, have the government work. He had to let him go. So then Warwick tries again with Edward's brother, the useless George, Duke of Clarence, who's married to Warwick's daughter. And he he tries to set Clarence up as his puppet. Nobody wants him instead of Edward. And what's the logic? How are you going to put the younger brother on the throne instead of the older brother? There's no possible justification for it. But I guess Warwick's gone so far down this road, he can't turn back. He's got to find another possible legitimate king. And the only available one is the one he'd helped bump off the throne in 1461. So he goes to France where Margaret and her little band of loyalist stalwarts have been holding out as best they could, but with no hope of getting back to power until Warwick turns up and says to the King of France, OK, let's do it. And the King of France, always keen to make trouble in England, summons Margaret and her advisers. The story goes that Margaret kept Warwick on his knees for 15 minutes before she would even let him stand up. She hated his guts, but the logic was inexorable. If she allied with Warwick, there was a chance of getting her son back to England, back to his position as heir heir to the throne. The future that should have been his could be again. She had to give in. She had to agree to the alliance. She had to agree that her son... Edward, Prince of Wales, would marry Warwick's daughter, Anne Neville. And that went well. Tragically, awfully badly. Uh, Warwick went ahead to try and secure England for their cause. Margaret and her son 
were left a bit stranded by contrary winds and also by wanting to make sure that Warwick had done the job before they set out. They landed in England on the very day that Warwick was defeated and killed at the Battle of Barnet. And when they heard that news, there was nothing for it but to fight as best they could. Battle of Tewkesbury, Margaret's beloved only child, her only son, fighting in his first battle at the age of 17. This is what she'd brought him up for when they'd been in exile in France. Someone who went to see them said, this young boy thinks only of battles, of chopping off heads. This is all he thinks about. His very first battle, his first chance to fight for his own right to the throne. He was cut down in the fighting and killed. And Margaret then left with nothing left to fight for. Her son was dead. Her husband was killed in the tower and brought out as a corpse to show to the people. Nothing left for Margaret. Nothing left except to survive the last years of her life and die in obscurity. Well, there's another happy ending <laughs> for a powerful woman in history. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Helen Castor, and before Helen, we heard from James Hawes. Thank you once again to, to both of them. Next episode, we'll look at events that we've touched on already, the desperately sad story of Edward IV's son, Edward V, and his dealings with his wicked uncle Richard. Yes, it's time for the tale of the princes in the tower. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.